Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and glad to help you on your journey towards senior leadership in the charitable world. Thanks for listening. If you are a current nonprofit leader or maybe hope to be one, you're in the right place. I'm glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit experts who are literally on the cutting edge of our sector. And I hope you'll do me a favor, share this episode with one other person so that we can continue to build a global community focused on nonprofit leadership. And speaking of nonprofit leadership, it seems only fitting to bring back one of the most popular guests we've had over the course of the first hundred episodes, and that is Michael Marsicano, the CEO of the Foundation for the Carolinas, who shared such great insight about the world of philanthropy as it grappled with a pandemic in April of 2020. He raised important questions then, and he also led to some conversations that almost required a return visit. And indeed, he was gracious enough to join me again on this episode. As with every guest, I really enjoy getting into some of the personal approaches to leadership and Michael's insight on what he's brought from this strange 12-month period of a pandemic, how it has affected his approach to his team and to the way he manages a significant community foundation, in fact, one of the largest community foundations in the United States. And then we dived into some of the tough issues that are still facing the nonprofit sector right now. How long will relief funding last as we grapple with COVID and coming out of the pandemic? And will there be secondary phases of funding and support to help sectors like the arts community and, frankly, all nonprofit organizations as they wrestle with changes that are not going to go away? We talked about what nonprofit leaders need to do as they come out of the pandemic and how they should focus their strategic energy. And finally, Michael shared his wisdom on the role of community foundations in the ongoing fights against racism, against health care disparities, access to education, and much more. You won't want to miss it. Great conversation. And also make sure you check out the show notes. This is episode number 99, the close of nearly the first 100 episodes of Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership. Make sure you go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll find all of the resources Michael mentions, including yet another set of great book recommendations, uh, as well as more information on Michael and the work he's doing at the Foundation for the Carolinas. Speaking of resources, make sure while you're on our website, you get on our email list. You can get free weekly resources that lift up episodes just like this at the podcast but also be on the lookout for some bonus content coming up in conjunction with number 100. That's right, episode 100 comes up next, and we'll have some free resource material as well as a contest that you might want to participate, especially if you're thinking about our Mastermind program. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Marsicano. Michael, thank you for joining me on the path. I am delighted to be with you, Patton. It's a, it's an honor to come back. Indeed. You are one of the few repeat guests, and it is an honor for our listeners 
to hear you again because your episode, frankly, is one of the most listened to we've ever had. And I think it's because not only the gifts you bring to this audience, but you're in the middle of so many important topics. Uh, in the last year, needless to say, has been a wild ride for everyone, but particularly for nonprofit leaders and the philanthropists that are trying to make a difference and community foundations like yours that bring it all together. So thank you in advance for sharing your insight. And I guess let me open with that, Michael. What has the last year been like for you as a leader because you're in the middle of all these things? First, let me say I am um, particularly uh, affirmed to know that um, our time together last time had um, a level of hearing uh, I, that that means a lot to me. Of course, that sets the bar very high. <laughs> to, yeah, to, exactly. Uh, no pressure. No pressure, of course. <laughs> no, right? no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> um, uh, the last year for all of us has been a year that uh, will be memorable, I think, throughout of our, our, our lives for so many different reasons. Uh, professionally, uh, for me, it turns out to have been in many ways ironically, the most productive year that I've ever had or that my team has ever had because the communities we serve were simply requiring, uh, asking, needing uh, so much from the foundation and from the community uh, that we were one way or another at, at the nexus of trying to make happen. And so I guess I learned that I had more capacity to get things done and my team had more capacity than we ever thought we did. Having said that, I don't think we can keep it up. Um, <laughs> right, I, right. Just, I, I just don't. Um, but I also saw what I would call almost a shift in the people we work with uh, from what was prior to the pandemic, a sense of, um, yearning for individual prosperity to a collective generosity mode. Right. And that collective generosity mode is right at the, the nexus of what the foundation does. And so that was very affirming to see the community respond as um, dramatically and as generously and as positively as possible. But it did take its toll on, on me professionally. We, the year before the pandemic, we allocated 20,000 different grant awards. And last year, uh, in 2020, we allocated 118,000. I'll say that again, 118,000. Wow. Um, wow. So you can see why I say it was a learning that I could, I could do more than I ever thought I could do in one year's time. And I would say that my team feels the same way. Uh, you you lifted up last time, Michael, the importance of keeping our teams engaged. And I think nonprofit leaders are riding a wave of maybe adrenaline in terms of helping uh, with so much need around us. But I guess we do have to be sensitive, don't we, to the endurance of our teams. And I know you've been doing things to assure that we don't wear out our teams. I wonder if you might speak to that because nonprofit leaders I know are sensitive as well. Well, this is an actually a very interesting topic, uh, Patton, that I think um, all forms of organizations are discussing as we return. Um, I have talked to some of my corporate uh, friends who have said that 
there it does seem to be this trend that when you go to home work, productivity skyrockets, pandemic or not pandemic, for for uh, you know a good year. But then there's some evidence that it actually begins to uh, we are we are ultimately less productive per day with a, a full home work um, right. experience. So I I would bet to say that the combination of the pandemic and um, and just working at home has led almost everybody in society um, that's been able to keep their jobs. Um, in this challenging time, to be more productive than in some ways that the, than they ever have, but there is a is there mental, emotional, and physical toll on that. So what we have done, for instance, is we have instituted a, um, a sabbatical uh, program. Uh, so if you've been at the foundation for a certain period of time, we want people to to get away, refresh, restart. Uh, recreate for a month and then hopefully come back refreshed. We've also uh, allocated money uh, specifically on top of folks' um, normal compensation to, frankly, individuals on our team having children or having elderly to take care of to give them a one-year modest boost uh, for the purposes of everything from being to order dinner more you know, to right. have a little thing sometimes, yeah, little right. things like that to um, um, helping with uh, having to have your children in some kind of educational program because the school is closed and you're still trying to work. So we've tried to make it as palatable uh, for those that are caregivers um, for individuals other than themselves. So those are just those are just two two examples. We we've, we've tried to keep up the social aspects in interesting and different ways. We couldn't have our, our holiday season party. So we delivered quite wonderful dinners to each family on our team. Nice. Um, and so these things turned out to be matter. In fact, in matter of fact, we have done a recent survey of satisfaction on our team, which we do pretty much every year. And it's at the highest. Higher than ever. Right. So there's an irony in all that, Pat. But I do think we need to take care of the emotional, physical, and well-being of our teams. Yeah, well, I'm delighted you lift that up. And again, I think nonprofit leaders of all types, as you say, organizational leaders of all types, I think need to be uh, continually sensitive to that uh, because it's easy to become isolated, as you know, in this world. And I'm struck by your point about while there is some advantages perhaps to the early productivity of stay-at-home, um, being careful about a long-term implication there. In fact, Michael, I've had some nonprofit leaders say to me that they wonder about going forward offering hybrid work opportunities. In other words, almost as a selling point to attract talent that you can maybe come to the office 50% and stay home 50%. But I wonder, what do you think about that type of dynamic? Is that a flexibility that perhaps is a good thing or might raise concern? So this is one of the uh, kind of professional and personal study tasks I have for myself. I've been reading a lot of articles on this very question, Pat, yep. and I would encourage every nonprofit um, CEO to read what is being written about this. And, uh, you know, there was a Harvard Business School article. Its title is COVID Killed the Traditional Work 
workplace. And this article essentially says the workplace as we used to know it is dead. I mean, it's, it's that it's that severe. dramatic. Yeah. Uh, another article uh, that I read coming out of the uh, McKinsey Global Institute um, essentially says that we're going to come out of this with 17 million workers who will change occupations. And that's 28% more workers changing uh, their careers than would have if the pandemic hadn't happened. So I think right. things are being turned upside, upside down. On the specific question of um, flexibility in terms of work from home, we are definitely going to uh, enable more flexibility, in part because we've learned that um, uh, positions we thought that could never be outside the office in their in their work path. I've actually worked quite well. Um, uh, having said that, uh, I I I believe I want to experiment with that flexibility for a certain period of time, and be ever conscious of this issue of of productivity. Uh, but I do think, to some extent, things have changed uh, forever. Um, flexibility will be required of employers now. Uh, but I'm not sure it can go to every position. So you get to equity, um, you know, and and so there's a lot of things that we are considering. And we have a a team at the foundation who is uh, looking at these different issues to try to figure out how we can propose to our staff, many of whom who have loved working from home, um, uh, some kind of hybrid. And, And yet that will be a phase in and we will see how it goes. Yep. And that may be not to be presumptuous, but perhaps our third conversation on this podcast might be to further evaluate as we come out of this, you know, what are the implications of workforces of all types, particularly in the nonprofit community and particularly like your team that have run so hard. Uh, how do we adapt? But I guess obviously we still have to be effective. In well, and what Patton, we do. Let me, let me just and, give an example of where I, I, I don't think sure. working from home is effective. And this does um, any organization that is convening people in any way. And, you know, the foundation convenes people on all different subjects all the time. Before we left our building, we were hosting four or 500 meetings and events a month. And um, I have found on all these Zoom calls, the gallery only works to an extent. Uh, I still really can't read the room. I can't read the interactions of the people with one another. Um, I see their faces, I hear their voices, but for someone like myself who would like to pride themselves on being a facilitator of dialogue and being able to have high antenna about where people are coming from, where they're going, what they're thinking, how they're interacting with each other, what their responses are to what someone else says, as much as I'm on Zoom and it is all day long, it does not <laughs> right it does not work as effectively as being in person it just doesn't yep point well taken for all the technological wizardry we can find in this virtual world you still need some right. direct but, interaction but for you? this hybrid that everyone's going to go to we're we are already repurposing our conference and boardrooms to put um, video conferencing in so that some people can be in the community at their homes for community dialogue, uh, but also see everybody in the room that's in the room when we go back. And so that means retooling a lot of our technology and that's already underway. Wow. 
but yes, something that's going to have to be thought about in every front and in every organization. Um, speaking of the busy year you and your team had, obviously a lot of the volume you described, I know was related to the wonderful COVID response fund. And I'm curious, uh, funders everywhere, as you know, Michael, around the world have uh, rallied around this cause trying to help. Could you reflect on the COVID-19 response fund? Um, I assume you would agree it's working or what are your early reads on the effectiveness of your response support? Well, that's a, that, that's a great question. And, and I think um, your listeners will be, will be very interested in um, first the fact that uh, the collective generosity was immediate and robust. Uh, and when I compare it to 2008, where we did a similar type of fund in the, in the great recession, when people were hurting equally, um, it took us much longer to raise the, 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 the dollars. Um, this was immediate. The generosity wow. was overnight. And, and it was uh, robust enough that we were able to adapt the funding across what I would call this year of when the needs changed. We had enough money to be able to change the way the grants were made uh, to address the need at any one time. So, for instance, right out of the gate, you had much more need for the food banks and the food pantries because right. uh, people were out of food. And what we were able to do with the money was to help many of the nonprofits adapt overnight with the funds that we gave them. So if I may, I'd like to actually give a couple of what we were Please. able to fund to, sh to have that kind of Adaptation. It illustrates it, doesn't it? Yeah, it illustrates exactly. what you do. Exactly. So if you take groups like Lowe's and Fishes, uh, uh, led by uh, Tina Pastel or Second Harvest, led by Kay Carter, these are the food bank, food pantries. Much of their work is dependent on volunteers delivering food. Exactly. You know, they're huge volunteer forces, which saves money on the, the costs of, of delivering the food. Well, those volunteers with the pandemic were not there any longer to um, deliver the food. So you had to rethink your workforce entirely. Uh, you had to increase the need for distance between people. You had to increase the cost related to cleaning and supplies. You had to, they had to move to mobile delivery services, uh, pop-up pantries in neighborhoods, drive-through pantries. Um, and so it was a complete rethinking of how they had to deliver that food. And we were able to fund some of that adaptation. You helped them develop new infrastructure, right? In many cases, I assume, right? Exactly. And another example is Roof Above. Uh, that's led by Liz Clayson uh, Kelly. And, you know, they had to drop their occupancy of, of housing uh, homeless individuals by 75% in their building in order for social distancing. Well, all of a sudden you have less space and yet you have more people who have fallen into homelessness. So you had to find other physical places to move the occupants. And you had to add, frankly, thousands of dollars a week, sanitize every day because of the transient nature. Right. Um, and these are the things that we were able to fund. So unlike many communities, you didn't have the lines in the food banks like you have seen elsewhere. You had... Right the same number of people being served in other, that other communities did because the need was there. So you, you didn't see the face of it everywhere because we were able to adapt so quickly through that fund. Um, so I guess the barbell is the, 
the fund was able to attract the generosity of our community, and it was able to help the adaptation of nonprofits overnight to deliver their services when the demand was greater. Well, that's fantastic. And I'm delighted you left up those examples because I think a lot of communities are finding creative ways to, and what you did, obviously, in those examples, Michael, is you helped those organizations beyond the pandemic, right? I'm sure these are improvements to their their uh, infrastructure and things like that that will yes, indeed it, it, improve. It, it will be interesting to see how much of these, um, what might have been perceived as temporary infrastructures, right. uh, move into uh, 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 more permanent ones. Uh, there are some groups that, uh, there's a group like Our Bridge for Kids, uh, led by Sil Ganzo, who actually was an after-school education program for immigrant and refugee children right. that actually, because of the COVID not having people come together, they completely became a food delivery. They delivered 130,000 meals. So in other words, they dropped what they were doing with education programming and children and adapted completely to the to serve the same communities and what they needed, but it was no longer in education. Now I bet they'll move back to education programming, right? As, as the, you know, the COVID casework comes down. Well, Mike, we talked about it last time. You know, what about those nonprofit organizations that aren't on the front line, so to speak, of this COVID relief effort uh, or recipients of this relief, but yet still are doing important uh, community efforts? How have you all looked at from a response? kind of framework. Uh, and in particular, you know, the arts community, which is near and dear to your heart, um, they're hurting too. How do we, how do we approach that? Yeah. So, you know, when I was, I, I advocated very strongly with um, not only the private sector, but particularly with the public sector, that some of the CARES Act dollars um, uh, go to uh, the cultural organizations and, right. and individual artists. Um, and fortunately, I got a robust uh, response there, and that was in cooperation with the Arts and Science Council, of, of, of course. Um, when we launched that fund in the fall of last year, we had calculated that within just, I think it was six months, the cultural institutions had lost $30 million wow. in $30 million in revenue. Now we were only to actually come up with six million for for the arts, but I did I do think it kept a lot of artists employed at these cultural institutions, and then there was also direct grant making on the Arts and Science Council side to individual artists that were in trouble as well. Uh, I think it's only because those cultural institutions were also able to access PPP. And they were also able they are able now to access to the Biden administration the um, sh uh, shuttered uh, venues. Right. Having said that, I believe those are stopgap measures and the cliff will come in their fiscal year, which begins in July. Um, because you simply were still, most of the venues are still closed or partially closed. And I think we have a, we have a, I think we have an emergency there. I mean, are they gonna close July 1? No. But if we don't come up with additional support, I think we're looking at some some pretty drastic um, uh, challenges with the with the arts community. Right. Having said that, one of the themes that we're talking about is adaptation. And 
it blew my mind when I learned that uh, the Blumenthal Arts Center, which of course, without their Broadway series has, have lo- has lost so much ticket sale revenue. Right. They're bringing in this um, interactive Van Gogh exhibit where they're essentially taking over a warehouse space and it's, and it's, you know, it's project mapping digitally of the entire, the floor, the ceiling, the, the, the walls. And it's also, there are circles for social distancing. And in the first week, they sold $4 million in tickets. Wow. So that's a think out of the box. It's Good not example. a performing arts. It's not a performing arts theatrical experience, live theatrical experience, but it is artistic. It is designed for social distancing. It will be very exciting. And they've morphed to a new way of seeking revenue in the absence of Broadway. Um, So that's the creativity I think exists within our nonprofit community. And do you think funders will continue to incentivize that? I would assume that creative programming is something funders will like. And something we talked about last time, too, is perhaps new ways of collaboration. And I stop short of saying, you know, mergers and acquisitions within the arts community or any of the sectors within the nonprofit world. But do you think that is something that funders might be looking at? Um, I think it's something that funders might be looking at. Um, But it's very interesting, Pat. If I take the experience the foundation had in 2008 uh, and I compare it to today, I would have to say that there must be something about human nature where we are much more cooperative and collaborative in times of crisis. Right. Um, because in 2008, we didn't see until the recession, we didn't see the type of collaboration and cooperation, whether it be just partnerships in delivering services or full-fledged mergers coming out of it of organizations. Uh, we didn't see it before. And frankly, we didn't see it much afterwards. Yep. Um, we are in that similar situation where we're seeing a lot of partnership, a lot of collaboration, uh, uh, and, and, it's, and it's wonderful to behold. But is there something about us that out of a crisis situation, just as human beings, we kind of go back to our um, corners of the world? I would like to think this particular experience of the combination of the pandemic with the post-George Floyd murder error of the rising commitments to, uh, uh, to, to racial uh, justice and, and uh, to mitigate racial inequality, that, that those two have ushered in, uh, those two simultaneous uh, issues have ushered in a new wave of lasting partnership and mergers. But I don't know if it will, Pat. Yeah, it's hard to be. As much as we'd like to be optimistic, you've seen it before, haven't you? Where the right, I, I've been there, and then it and it and it and it dissipated. Um, having said that, uh, nonprofits will follow where donors, uh, foundations, corporate foundations, family foundations, individual donors, um, and and government will uh, not direct them, but provide incentives for them. And so if I do think in that, in the the resourced community that will be allocating funds, they have seen this level of partnership and collaboration. And it wouldn't surprise me if that begins to um, seep more into grant guidelines and to continue to encourage it. 
Um, but at the end of the day, the nonprofit group doesn't have to apply for the money. Exactly. It's not a mandate, uh, I guess. And are you finding similar conversations with your colleagues around the country, Michael, in the community foundation space? Are, are some of them changing the way they do business, so to speak, in terms of this new view of philanthropy? Uh, yes, I would say that virtually all of them, including uh, Foundation for the Carolinas, our community foundation in this region, are all putting a lot of time, energy, and effort into thinking through the questions of social justice and, and racial equity. Right. Um, universally across the, um, uh, the the foundation field. And so I, assist, I expect in our own organization and my collegial institutions that you're going to see um, some pretty significant um, initiatives. Uh, I've grown to some extent to dislike the word pivot, which we've all used in the <laughs> pandemic. Yeah, but, we've worn it out, but, it, but it, it's still right, the right word, it, maybe. But it's still the right word to the pivoting that we will do um, um, be, be, because of the rise in universal view uh, that the time has come, the time has passed for us to be uh, meaningful in, in tackling um, these important issues. Uh, you're so right. And I do think there's a genuine enthusiasm that this is not just a moment, but a movement in terms of racial equity. And do you, how do you think that will manifest itself? I mean, I would guess funders may put more scrutiny on an organization for its board composition or its hiring practices, or are there other ways that you think funders are going to scrutinize organizations to not just talk the talk? I think some funders will stay in their subject matter, major, excuse me, subject matter priority lanes, but they will put a uh, racial equity lens to it. Right. Uh, in some ways, like you are suggesting, um, uh, scrutinizing the diversity of boards and uh, professional teams. Uh, but, but perhaps even more profoundly, let's take a, a foundation that might have a uh, subject matter by mission in healthcare. Well, we have seen with this pandemic, once again, in a very dramatic way, the healthcare disparities that exist out there along racial lines. So one could see staying within your, your grant-making mission of healthcare, turning upside down what within that you would be funding in a direction of mitigating health care disparities. Right. So, you know, some of it will be um, the type of uh, incremental things like making sure boards are diverse and, uh, and constituents are diverse, but others could be wholesale retooling their grants programs within these missions um, in very dramatic ways that we, we may not have seen yet. Will others actually drop their um, subject matter emphases and uh, and go directly into uh, racial equity and social justice as a subject matter in and of itself? Right. Uh, there may be some of that, but I think it would be more likely. Uh, uh, you know, community foundation can can consider doing that much um, much more um, uh, nimbly than a private foundation that may have a mission driven that was founded by in a large estate gift by a family that's codified in the trustee documents. And exactly. All they're, they're restricted, aren't they, in some respects? Exactly. But they can 
adopt racial equity and social justice within the subject matter. So I think that might, my, my, you know, if I had a crystal ball, that might be, that be more, might be more prevalent. However, I would also say I would predict uh, that there will, might be collective uh, giving initiatives that would focus specifically on the subject matter of racial equity in, in its multiple um, um, uh, forms of, right. of work. Uh, the Mayor's Task Force uh, in Charlotte, which is um, about to make a major report on four streams uh, of racial equity work that will be a, a multi-million dollar collective effort um, so more on that later, uh, but that's an example where the community is coming together to uh, tackle the subject matter as a subject matter, as opposed to a, um, you know, a, a pivot within another subject matter. Got it. Makes perfect sense. Well, and I guess speaking of your crystal ball, Michael, I'm glad you have it out so I can ask you about <laughs> it, it, it. What do you see going forward in terms of these relief funds transitioning into, uh, I hate to say going back to the way we funded things, because I'm, I'm sure it's not going to be exactly the same way. But do you see, given particularly the long-term challenge for certain types of organizations, how will this relief funding continue? Yes. Well, this is on my mind a lot because um, we're in a very interesting period. And I, and I, uh, I am an optimistic and half glass full person. Um, but I have some worries, and these are my worries, uh, Pat. First, um, the COVID response fund has dramatically uh, held things up and helped people adapt. Many of them, the larger nonprofits, um, have received PPP from the first wave of relief funds. Right. Um, they, there has been a second wave of PPP um, we now have the stimulus money from the Biden administration. So I, I, the good news is we are keeping it together. What I'm worried about is all of those large amounts of money are temporary. Yes. And I do not yet know what the cliff will be when each of those pools of money. I mean, I'm astounded with how America has come together on the private side and the public side to keep things going and to keep people served. But what happens when these temporary measures uh, disappear? So for instance, in 2008, when we did the um, uh, fund then uh, to help individuals, as you know, we followed it up with a second fund to help nonprofits adjust to new realities coming out of that recession. Right. I think we are going to have to do something to the new realities coming out of this, but we're not out of it yet to know what we need to do. Right. Which is a really Tricky challenging place to place be. To be. Uh, but I fear that we will get back to opening up society, right? Um, and people will start to um, be very mobile and socialize and there will be, and, and the, the employment base will go back up. Um, but I think we could artificially be being looking at, we could artificially be holding things up in the nonprofit sector that there will be a cliff in the relatively near future we're not able to see yet. 
So I don't mean to be a downer because we're getting right. to a good place in, in, with a pandemic, but I don't know that we've seen the future yet. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, there may be more to come, but nonprofit leaders need to pay attention and be ready for whatever outcome occurs on that side. And speaking of a question that uh, I know you get, and as an extraordinary fundraiser yourself, <laughs> the Carolina Theater being the latest example or one of many examples where fundraising still continues outside of what I would call, I guess, pandemic type or relief funding. Um, if I'm in a campaign, Michael, or thinking about a campaign, What's your kind of general reaction to organizations pondering just that? Well, Patton, I just did a survey of the um, uh, nonprofits um, in the area and 75 of them um, have expressed uh, either a, a, on one, four phases of uh, what I'll call major endowment or capital campaigns, not annual, uh, that goes, that goes without saying. Right, right. Uh, they're either in an exploratory phase, an actual formal study phase, a quiet phase, or a public phase. And in the next three years, what is being proposed anyway by 75 uh, nonprofit organizations uh, is a total um, uh, dollar amount of $1.7 in uh, expressed needs in campaigns wow. over three years. That's just in this region, of course, right? Is this a regional kind of study well, or really Charlotte I, proper? Actually, this particular one, and I need to expand it to the region we serve, but this particular one was just Charlotte Mecklenburg. Wow. Now, when people have heard that number, they've asked me two questions. Is this typical? Um, or, and therefore we shouldn't worry about the fact that all of this amount of money is trying to be raised at one time, and there's only so much resources to give to all these projects, even if people decide to be more generous uh, than they have been pre-COVID. And, and I think that's quite possible, but they will be. Um, uh, and my answer to that is, well, first, there are two very large ones that stand out. Um, the a very exciting uh, medical school campaign that Atrium will launch is 500 million of that um, 1.7 billion. Right. You know, so that's a that's a, we've never seen a campaign that large outside of the universities here, but those are national campaigns, right? The universities have alums all over the right. country. Um, and then there's also Discovery Place, which is uh, proposing a, a you know somewhere between a three and four hundred million dollar campaign. On that one, it may be divided between the public and the private. So there are those outliers. And by the way, they're both terribly exciting projects. Um, <laughs> exactly. Now, but, but what I but significant for sure. What what I would say though is that even if you take those out, the dollar levels of each of the remaining happening in one time is unusual. It's not that we couldn't bite the elephant one, eat the elephant one bite at a time over time. But if it's all going to happen at one time, and I don't judge that the need isn't there, I think it is, um, because it's not only the needs that come out of the pandemic, but it, it, is, uh, it is fascinating to me that people are moving to Charlotte I'm told in even greater numbers during the pandemic than before the pandemic. 
So the need is not just a need of coming out of the pandemic. It's also a need of the growth of our community and therefore the need for more services. Um, I don't know how that can all happen at one time. And I'm actually having a meeting uh, in mid-April with all of the groups that participated in that study to show them the results um, to talk about it because I am fearful of success for all 75 <laughs> because of the dollar. The dollar yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to ask you because it, I think a lot of organizations, there's a pent up demand uh, for fundraising, right? Or more funds to, to, to do what they want to do. But you're right. Is there the capacity, I guess, is your point, right? When all 75 of these organizations launch into campaign mode, um, and I imagine this is similar in communities across the country, right? Organizations are excited to get back out there, so to speak. And is it just going to be a survival of the fittest? Well, this is what this is what um, uh, concerns me because um, I think we have we have learned, you know, I think if we haven't learned that survival of the fittest as a society is not always the way to go. Exactly. Um, by now, I don't know what we've learned. Um, so we have to think about this carefully. In days gone past, there used to be a capital funds board, and it used to um, used to schedule these things. Um, I remember that. You're yeah, right. And the nonprofit community bought into that scheduling. Um, but now we're too big of a community to do that. And frankly, the hyper-focusing, which I may have talked about last time in our conversation, but I would give a little bit of a... Uh, clarification of what I mean by that. Um, in the name of impact investing, which is on every funder's mind, most of the corporations and the, non- and the, the private family foundations have hyper-focused to subject matters. And there is less a percentage of, um, of philanthropic dollars that are open to any particular need of a community and an organization that can fulfill that need because we have this hyper-focused nature. Uh, so right. just let me give you an example. There are only two companies that um, have in their mission of philanthropy the environment right now. Well, that means they're going to have to do all of it. <laughs> wow. so if a yeah, major, which is not... <laughs> if, a, if a major environmental issue comes forward that we all want to do, most of the corporations and the foundations are going to have to break their uh, adopted policies. So I worry about this hyper-focused um, when it comes to this very question of this $1.7 um, billion campaign. I am going to bet the only way we're going to be able to raise $500 million for medical school, which everybody wants, is every one of right. those entities are going to break their policies to get there, unless it happens to be a foundation who's Mission is healthcare. Who could naturally give to that? But you're right. A lot of them may have specialized themselves so far into a narrow giving pattern that it's hard to them to do that. And I, do you feel as a community foundation leader that you need to lift up a broader sense of philanthropy? In other words, is it a bit dangerous if we hyper-specialize? I, I, I do think so, um, um, uh, Patton. I I. I accept and understand and think it is helpful for uh, foundations, corporate and family, to fund the subject matters of their passion 
or of their um, particular corporate emphasis in the case of corporations. Uh, I do think there's value to this notion of impact investing and to uh, put your funds into something and really uh, push an issue to get something done in that space. So I'm not objecting to a portion of philanthropy going in that direction. Right. I am concerned that we break down the social capital of philanthropy, we, we break down the ability of philanthropists to collaborate, and we break down the ability of emerging needs to come forward if folks are hyper-focused with all of their funds. There's one corporation in town, which I, I, have, I, I hold up, not by name, but by uh, practice, that is hyper-focusing on 75% of their philanthropic budget to three areas, but they're leaving 20, at least 25% for just collaborative community needs that, that come up. Good. And, and so I think there is a hybrid of this approach, but I think we have gone too far uh, in the hyper-focused way. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, and of course, you know all too well the, the challenges of the kind of federated community campaigns like the United Ways, like Arts Federations, it appears donors are less inclined to give to that kind of community impact fund. But I, I think you're hopeful that perhaps organizations, foundations will still balance their giving to allow for those emerging needs as well. Uh, Pat, and I was talking to, you know, the, the large resourced entities, the corporations and the, the, the large family foundations or the large um, uh, high net worth individuals. Right. Charlotte didn't have that. The region didn't have that for a very long time. And so it was through these united campaigns, frankly, that both in human services and in the cultural life of our communities, that we have what we have. It was a lot of small dollars in workplace giving, adding up to significant amounts of money, that path of philanthropy is disappearing overnight. It's disappearing because uh, the workplace, the workplaces themselves have stopped enabling the Arts and Science Council and the United Way to pitch the employees directly. Right. So you can't really sell your product, so to speak. Um, and I do think successive generations of younger people uh, want to give directly to the nonprofit rather than to the collective. They want to make their own decision rather than having a collective uh, pool where a group of designated individuals uh, decide where the money goes. That's a, that's a, a, a cultural s- uh, change by generation right. uh, that is happening. We have not adjusted for it. Um, we have not grown other revenue sources for the arts of human services uh, dramatically enough or quickly enough to make up for the decline in the workplace uh, uh, giving. And I believe that uh, this coming year, both in the arts and human services, uh, we will see um, some real challenges until we adjust to a new revenue mix for both those industries. And I would predict those are going to be some very big challenges. Uh, well put. And it, it, I do think that's a headline that is across so many communities. And I'm glad you're in the middle of it for hours. 
because it, it's it's sad and scary, isn't it, in some respects, if these organizations that have been reliant on that type of funding, they're going to have to look at a new model. Yes, and, and for your listeners, as wide as, uh, as they are um, um, it, uh, in terms of geography, uh, this particular issue is absolutely in every community. Exactly. It's, it is uh, universal in so many respects. Um, Particularly, Patton, I would say in the in the midsize cities and the smaller cities, right? You know, the the larger cities have such levels of wealth. I, I think they have an opportunity to adjust quicker. Um, Good point. But others, the medium and smaller size communities, could be hurt in an even more acute way from this kind of funding shift, couldn't they? I think so. Yes. Michael, it's been fantastic um, in terms of breaking down. You have broken down all of the aspects of uh, kind of relief funding and all that. I, I want to go back to what I thought was fantastic advice you gave last time about how you as a leader prefer to spend the majority of your time living in the future. But of course, the last you know 18 months have really not allowed you to be as forward thinking perhaps because you were reacting. But can you talk about that again uh, for nonprofit leaders listening uh, are, are you finding in your own leadership a balance of kind of current versus looking ahead? Well, to, to level the playing field on this very topic, um, my life before COVID was 75% what I would call living in the future and 25% focused on the here and now and on the management of my team. Um, and if and I recommended that if any CEO of a nonprofit, frankly, of any entity can get to that level, um, you can you can really um, move and adapt and know what's ahead and being and help not only your institution but your community um, move move forward uh, quicker uh, and more robustly. Uh, that has not been the case, uh, as you suggest, for the period of time of COVID. I, I've gone more to the, the reverse, 75% in the here and now, <laughs> trying to hold, hold on to 25% in the future. As things have gotten um, um, better in some ways, I'd say that if I were dividing the time, I'd be more 50-50 right now. Um, I'm doing a lot of reading on racial equity. I'm doing a lot of reading on um, how we open up um, our workplaces. Uh, as we discussed earlier, I'm, I'm trying to get some of my time back to, to so to speak, living in the, in, in the future. Right. Whether I can get back to that um, pre-pandemic um, level, I, I just don't know because I have already predicted that we will have some challenging years ahead um, and by the way, those challenging years are not just nonprofits. I, I read recently that uh, hotels are not going to get to to back to 2019 level until 2023 or 24. Wow! So I think we're all going to have a multi-year um, um, getting back to some normalcy, as however we will redefine that. And so I think I'm going to have to uh, be at reactive in the moment for for um, a few more years. Foreseeable um, future. Right. Exactly. Michael, that's fantastic advice. Um, and I think realistic advice for leaders who are trying to find the balance as you described, not losing sight of the future, but 
realizing this kind of perhaps near-term reality. And and I'm delighted that you're such a champion of lifelong learning. I have in my notes here your continued emphasis for leaders to think about this hybrid work life and uh, racial equity and hyper-specialization of funders. But is there anything else you might offer to someone who comes to you and says, Michael, I'm thinking about getting into nonprofit leadership. Those are certainly some topics I guess you would encourage them to study. Well, I, uh, you know, I love, I love my work. I can't wait, wait to go to work every day because I love working in the nonprofit uh, sector. So I want to encourage everyone to consider it as a career. Or <laughs> good, good. It's a career. Um, uh, I would say this, most of us get into the nonprofit world because of a passion for a subject matter. Mine, as you have mentioned, originally was a passion for the arts. Right. Um, but what I found myself as I progressed up the ladder of a, of a career and therefore the hierarchy within an organization to become, you know, the, the CEO, um, that um, the majority of the time is no longer spent with that passion on a day-to-day basis. Interesting. And, and so if you um, are in it for the passion, but can't and and want to progress to your career, both in perhaps running an organization, um, also with that more compensation, uh, you have to move into the areas of management and business and finance and communications and marketing and fundraising. Did I say fundraising? Let me say it again. <laughs> fundraising. Underline that one, right? <laughs> right. And if you're not um, if you're not able to make that transition and learn how to make that transition, um, and and do your lifelong learning to make that transition, you either have to stay within the direct programming service of the passion, right, feeding your soul with the direct experience with the passion, right, to know that you move into a more di- indirect. Um, experience with the passion. And I don't know how many uh, uh, folks who get into this business for that passion reason uh, can adjust themselves. And then let me give you an example that's classic. We put these phenomenal academic scholars at our major universities um, who are changing the world with their scholarship into presidencies of colleges and universities and sometimes they don't know the first thing about running a business that's as large as a university. Absolutely. And they can do it because they have such infrastructure. They can put people around them who know how to run things. Um, that's not the case with most nonprofits. It's, <laughs> right. you know, right. yeah. so I, I want to encourage people to go into it, but I also want to encourage them. Uh, I think you have to go into it for the passion. Uh, but you you have to be able to take on other things that you may or may not find are, are in you. I could not agree more. As a liberal arts major that I was early in my career, passionate about the Special Olympics organization in my case, but I did realize quickly, I need to understand what a balance sheet and a P&L uh, are, right, if I'm going to move along the ladder at all. Exactly. And I, I when, 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 an or, when someone like, you're where you started, where I started. If they, if they progress up the ladder and don't get that, they will fail. Yes. And they will ultimately fail their mission. Yeah. 
Great advice, as you have provided once again throughout this conversation, Michael. I'm very grateful, as I know our listeners are. I'm going to again ask you the unfair question of a book recommendation, or maybe more than one in your case, because I know you have lots of good ideas on that topic. Well, so uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, eventually, we'll have to run this uh, run this down. But go ahead. <laughs> okay, I, I am actually going to see how far I can get with uh, with five with five. So uh, uh, all right, let's hear them. Let's hear them. I'll, I'll be real quick. Uh, first, I'd say that they're not the kind of nonprofit leadership book you might expect, sure. uh, because in in my stage of career, I'm interested in kind of um, in, in some ways bigger. Uh, global questions. Sure. Um, there's a great book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Mankind, um, History Love of that. Humankind, rather. Yeah. Um, it's been around a, a good bit, but it, it, it really um, uh, talks about how um, uh, humans um, became dominant in, in, the, in the world because of their uh, ability to cooperate and their flexibility in cooperating in large numbers. And there has been a huge upside to that and a huge downside to that. Um, uh, and it takes you into the different phases of history and where that ability of us to cooperate has both been uh, uh, moving humanity forward and taking humanity backwards. Fascinating um, study. Uh, on the question of uh, racial equity, a book that's also been around to some extent, um, uh, Cast. And it, it, it talks about American it's hidden caste system and rigid hierarchy of hum, human, human rankings. And it goes beyond just the ones we think we know about of race and class. So in this racial equity um, um, focus, I think that's a, that's a good one. Great one, idea. Yep. One that focuses a little bit more on the day-to-day -day work of an, of, a, of an executive is called Deep Work. Uh, rules for focused success in a distracted world, and I, I like this book and recommend it more as kind of a professional book, because I think we are distracted by so many social media, so many emails, so many contacts. Um, um, I can't even get through my emails every day. You know, how do executives um, uh, recapture their ability to go deeper in their thinking and avoid the constant distractions that are that are there are really not meaningful to the to, to the work so that I, have, would, I have to jump into well sorry to interrupt you cal newport is one of my favorites michael so yes. thank you for lifting that so up that is the author so um and then uh, what i'm just beginning um which also relates somewhat to the the discussion of of racial equity and social justice it's called the tyranny of merit and its subtitle is what's become of the common good and it talks about rethinking our whole country's um, persona of being a meritocracy. Right. That a meritocracy alone um, uh, has had um, uh, some very dire consequences in, in, in our country and that we have to rethink our attitudes towards success and failure if we're gonna be a more humane uh, American society. So I'm just beginning that, and so wow. stay tuned on that one. But the, the, those um, uh, books I, I would put before folks as um, as ones that um, are have been really meaningful to to my uh, my reading right now. It's a fantastic collection, and I, I, I let me check you on it. So Sapiens cast deep work tyranny of merit. That's four. 
fantastic um, across. Is there one yeah. more you might have? I thought I had five, but I guess it was four. <laughs> um, I, I, I would say that I do for my downtime is I do read murder mysteries. There. <laughs> so we can read for pleasure as well, right? We don't have to always yeah, be we studying. We need to. We need to. <laughs> All right. Well, Michael, fantastic choices. I, I take it you'll allow me to, if I have to feature one in the cover art of your episode, are you going to let me choose or do you want to lift one up uh, as a let, priority? I'm going to let you choose. <laughs> <laughs> we'll list all of them in the show notes for sure. And of course, in addition to that, in the show notes, we're going to lift up the great work you and the Foundation of the Carolinas are doing. Is there anything in particular you would want to call our listeners to as they perhaps find out the, more about the foundation and it through its website, perhaps? Well, I, I think you're beginning to see on our website some of our uh, positions and um, uh, on, the, on the issues of racial equity and social justice. Um, much more to come. Um, we, I think we all acknowledge we haven't done as much as we should have in this area and need to give it uh, a robust attention. So you're beginning to see uh, where we're going with, with that. I, I would say uh, another thing that I think it might be surprising to people is how much closer through the pandemic the foundation, which is considered a philanthropic organization, has gotten with government. Um, when I got the phone call to ask that the foundation was asked to distribute $43 million in grants to small businesses, hotels, wow. restaurants, yep. um, that took us in a whole different direction and got us into all sorts of different neighborhoods that we hadn't been in before. And that is changing some of the thinking of the foundation because we now have a whole new constituency that didn't know much about us. And so it's another example of partnership, but it is something that most people might not know because they think of us as purely a philanthropic organization, yet more and more we find ourselves in partnership with government. And I hope those kind of partnerships continue. Uh, it's fantastic. And I will certainly highlight that to our listeners that there's great content on your website and it does indeed lift up some of these very current and important issues and for that, I'm grateful, Michael, for your leadership as a lifelong learner and uh, leading an adaptable organization like the Foundation for the Carolinas. So thank you again for joining me on the path. Uh, Patton, thank you for, for having me. You are a wonderful um, interviewer, and I hope I've been a good <laughs> interviewee. Indeed. Uh, I think uh, you may well be on the list for a third if you can stand it. Uh, again, it's always great to check in with you and uh, please continue the good work you're doing for our community and of course, communities everywhere. Thank you so much. You're most kind. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Michael as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that will help shape your thinking about philanthropy and nonprofit leadership as we move out of this pandemic. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can find out more about Michael, the Foundation for the Carolinas, and some great book recommendations that Michael left us with. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. If you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com, and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features just like this one that we're producing at least once a month. And by the way, if you like this episode, you need to go back and check out episode number 32. That is Michael's previous episode on the path. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. 
and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.